Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to this episode of the New Books Network podcast. I'm, I'm thrilled here uh, today to be discussing the concrete plateau, urban patterns, and Chinese civilizing machine with the author Andrew Grant, uh, Dr. Andrew Grant. I'm a new host, and this is my first episode interviewing an author for the New Books Network. Uh, and uh, when I first saw uh, Andrew's book come out, I immediately reached out to him uh, for the interview because I knew that this could be my first interview on the network. So I'm very, very excited um, that I, we could do this. And I'm also very grateful to um, Dr. Andrew Grant for accepting to be here. I have really enjoyed reading the book and I'm looking forward to discussing it uh, and learning more about your work uh, in this conversation. To briefly introduce uh, Professor Andrew Grant, uh, he is a political geographer who is at the moment a, a visiting scholar of international studies at Boston College. He holds a PhD in geography from uh, UCLA. His research interests broadly concern the role of urbanization, borders, and other materials in global geopolitics, marginalized groups. Now. Um, Without further ado, let's uh, let's begin. And uh, let me ask Dr. Grant the the classic New Books Network question. Um, that is, uh, could you uh, tell us about your academic background and how did you come to work on this uh, particular book project? Well, first of all, thank you so much, Paul Dengel, for reaching out to me and for being able to have this conversation with you. Uh, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about my book. I became you know, first interested uh, my, about the city of Sheening, which is the main topic of my book, when I was, uh, after I was an undergraduate, and I spent a year there um, teaching, teaching uh, English at one of the colleges. And at this time, this was 2007 to eight, so the city was really just starting to um, develop. So I, uh, well, develop in terms of sort of the most recent efflorescence of urbanization that's gone on there. So my, my background before that was I had been a, ge- a geography major in an undergraduate program, and I was at that time applying to graduate schools, and I initially wanted to do something with cultural geography and sacred mountains in Tibet, but instead I became interested in some of the more political aspects, so I got my PhD in political geography. So other than that, I mean, I, I've knowledge of China, and I've also studied Russia uh, in the past, or my minor as an undergraduate was um, Russian stuff. So I guess I've, I've always been interested in um, political borderlands. Uh, thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, so this might be a little bit of a, a spoiler, uh, but uh, I first want to ask uh, briefly, again, you can uh, answer this briefly. What's the was the central argument of the book. Yeah, thanks. The book is, it's a work of political geography that takes urbanization very seriously and centrally. And one of the arguments I was trying to make is that, you know, rather than looking at, as I think is uh, common, that urbanization within China is something that is uh, being used in Tibetan areas to sort of fully assimilate the population and that there is that there are no politics in that, right? So if you read 
so instead of that, I'd say, yes, there is a politics to it. There is a lot of agency. And I'm coming at this because a lot of the literature on um, urban politics is literature that has, I guess you could say it's, a, it's like contested politics where people are unhappy that their homes are being rebuilt or, um, you know, there, there may be protests and things like this. But right, if you go to Chinese cities, you're not too likely to see this. Uh, you, you can find the nail households and other um, populations pushing for compensation in many places across China. But you know, I think in particular in Tibetan areas, um, with what in China are the government calls ethnic minorities, with uh, indigenous groups in Western China, it's very hard for them to sort of push back against that, to assert themselves too much, because you can be accused of splitism or separatism and things like this, extremism. So this is harder to do. So I was interested to see how are there, how do Tibetans have a politics that's really uh, a subaltern urban politics where we can find them working to sustain, maintain, and reinvent their culture in urban areas. Mm-hmm. And I think you okay. can find it. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Uh, so, so one of the kind of central frameworks, uh, as I see it, is that which you engage in the and throughout the book, but particularly in the first first chapter, is the idea of circular migration, and and here you establish uh, how the rural and urban divides exist only in, in terms of state administration and planning. But in practice, the the rural places are more integrated in terms of, of material development and, and mobility of labor. Uh, and with this uh, phenomena of, of circular migration, you argue how certain processes complicate uh, the urban-rural distinction and how this at the same time allows for the emergence of of a regional modernity, uh, so so could you elaborate on how this happens and perhaps with uh, with examples from your uh, ethnographic work and how, for instance, the uh, the Xining Tibetan market uh, contributes to this uh, to this process. Yeah, sure. Uh, I'd say one of the interesting things uh, that really comes out of this chapter is I, I, I sort of started with. You know, if you're talking about the urban, well, and the urbanization is coming to the Tibetan plateau, then then what is the rule? And this resonates with all these other sorts of um, arguments like core periphery uh, or sort of a cultural center, which has been common in sort of um, ethnic studies of China and that um, orientation. But I was also interested in this, uh, coming at this from urban studies and development studies questions. So one of the interesting, or some of the interesting things I encountered then were these discussions of regional migration coming from studies in India, where you have people who are going to cities and um, often doing labor there and encountering different technologies and styles and life ways and bringing them back into rural areas. And that this wasn't necessarily a one-way process, or it wasn't just, let's take what's in the city as it's being presented and take it back with us. So the example then of, of Tibetans and their way of finding agency with this is many of them, uh, people I did research with, would move between urban areas and rural areas over the course of the year, which is enabled by highways. Uh, so, so there's quite a bit of um, mobility in this. And the Tibetan market you bring up is uh, a good example of this because this would be an area where 
a lot of the people that were shopkeepers there might be staying in apartments. They weren't necessarily permanent residents of the city. They might be staying with relatives or people from their hometowns. And uh, whether they were, you know, selling tents or hats or making posters for uh, like vinyl printed posters for restaurants and things, you had... uh, they were really engaged in taking these technologies, these newer technologies and styles, and I guess you could say adapting them for Tibetan community. And they, this was very important for them. They really wanted to do this. They saw this as a contribution to Tibetan culture. Meanwhile, many of their customers are also circulating. You would have, um, for instance, lots of the the uh, jokba, the um, pastoralist customers who would come um, during the winter and, and buying things as well. So you had a lot of the circulation. I thought it was really interesting because the sort of vision of there being like this sort of monolithic form of urbanization that's just happening and erasing everything, everything just becomes the rules displaced by the urban. I, I think in practice, if you look at it at a finer grain, you can actually see that these places are sort of um, collapsed into one another, urban areas and rural areas, rural elements into urban. Mm-hmm. And this really, and this really shapes um, people's desires for their families, for themselves, for their community. And it's just, it's a really interesting insight um, that I learned of how, uh, you know, Tibetans are imagining their economic and social futures through this, which is why I was calling it a sort of cosmopolitan dreaming. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, this reminded me of what uh, a conversation I had with my brother about about the kind of the changing architectural landscape of of Tibetan rural rural uh, areas, uh, and especially in in place where I am from, and that uh, increasingly the new buildings are built with with cement and concrete. So there is an effort uh, among some Tibetans to keep their traditional. Uh, not have this uh, alongside their new concrete buildings, even in the in the rural areas. And I thought that was a, a, a kind of interesting example of how this kind of circulation of not just people, but also materiality, right, of, of urban rural kind of circulation yeah. that you were discussing. Totally. And, and that's great because it really, it, again, that also disrupts this idea, right, that people might have that if the urban comes in, just whatever they're necessarily is eliminated or there's no longer any connection to it but you can have both of these things sort of coexisting yeah right yeah uh now let's move uh to the next chapter and and the next chapter remembering shining is is a fascinating chapter uh, and uh, it's actually one of my favorite chapters uh on the tibetan and chinese uh, historiography and historical discourse on the city and um it's interesting to me because here you see how uh, Xining has become a, a, a battleground for historical memory and, and, and politics of, of memory. And, mm. and you discuss it through the circulations of historical figures and, and technologies such as uh, mythologies, memorialization practices, toponyms and names of roads, parks, etc. And, and, and here you employ the idea of chronotype as historically loaded um, idioms to, to reveal the ongoing dialogue and contestation between state narratives and Tibetan, uh, Tibetan institutions. Uh, so 
let me ask, um, um, could you tell us how memorialization of urban landscape carried out mainly by the state and urban development programs allow and, uh, and work uh, towards the creation of a, a Chinese city or a Chinese chining as a, a, a Western pacification frontier? Uh, and or in other words, uh, in what ways uh, do, do such practices contribute to the civilizing machine? Yeah, thanks. So this brings up the topic of what a civilizing machine, which I'll, I'll revisit, but one of the, um, I guess, themes in contemporary China that you see, whether it's ecological civilization or the civilized city, um, or the Belt and Road Initiative is this idea of the great Chinese civilization, right, which goes back 5,000 years. Um, and it's just sort of also used to kind of give this sort of depth and profundity to many of the topics in Chinese policy and discourse, because civilization, when Ming, is seen as being something very sophisticated and accomplished. So I was say, uh, in this chapter, I was exploring some of the conversations that one can encounter in the memorialized landscape and also in popular books about the city of um, Xining and how these relate to these different forms of civilization. So one of them was this idea that you had just mentioned, Western pacification, that uh, Xining, like many other cities in Western China, if you go through, if you pick up the yearbook, for instance, uh, or um, the annals, sort of... Uh, historical annals, you can see that the, you know, the city is always talked about from the perspective, right, of, you could say, Nadi or Eastern China, and that the city really only shows up in that way, and it shows up as a place that's being re, um, reunified with China. And even in the landscape, when there, when there's these memorials, there's something called the Hohong River Walk, there's a, there's a number of these sites across the city, there are lots of historical figures that are being commemorated that are not necessarily from the region. They're not indigenous to the region. They've come from Nadi, or they are uh, groups that have were, you know, co cooperated and coordinated with these other governments. And and in the way that they're discussed in these uh, books and um, plaques and memorialized things. They're often getting skills. This is sort of like the Princess Wenchung thing you can encounter in Laos. So they're getting skills um, that they're being taught basically by historical Chinese empires. Or they're, uh, they have spent time in, in the Nadi and where they have been sort of made more culturally Chinese. So there's a lot of this reminding you of the connections or I remember one of them was even emphasizing the fact that it was, you know, tying it to the contemporary period of ethnic um, Ronghua, of this assimilation. So it's, remind, it's saying that, you know, for thousands of years, basically this process of getting good stuff and being pacified and peace having brought is, is, is happening. The other one I was interested in was one that was more about Chinese mythology, this idea of Kunlun civilization. So the, the queen mother of the West, and this isn't exclusive to the city of Xining because local governments, municipal, county level, will try to, to develop uh, tourism economies around this. But once again, even like there's these very old trees in the landscape and 
Uh, you know, even these trees have been narrated as being part of either Kunlun civilization or they were brought by, uh, they date from the time of Princess Wencheng. So I, I was calling this, this is more of a, not so much a historical chronotope, but a, a chronotope of eternal connection because these things are, owe themselves quite a bit to, to folklore. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, uh, so the next chapter, which is uh, Civilized City, uh, is where you examine how programs of civilization or development have been deployed um, as material and aesthetic uh, practices, and how these programs uh, aim at producing uh, uh, ideologically homogeneous and modern places through control of social behavior and, and, and urban landscape in general. And more specifically, you discuss how this uh, civilizing machine as a biopolitical machine through population uh, governance and management of bodily practices. And here, could you discuss how and why uh, such measures are necessary for the realization of uh, a civilized city? Or in other words, what does it mean to to civilize a city for the, for the Chinese state? And what are uh, some of its presumptions about uh, civilized city and its residents? Yeah. So I, one of the, the, the term, again, civil, civilizing machine I'm using in the book, I'm, I'm interested in ideas of assemblage of different ways that cities can be materially and discursively assembled. So, you know, this memory I just talked about, uh, or these, these chronotopes, this was one way of assembling the, you could say, symbolic or cultural content of the city to make it more cinified. Uh, but there's also material elements, right? And so... Uh, you know, one of the things I'm interested in is what are the different things that are brought um, into the city in order to realize it as something that's sort of civilized. And part of that will be the material landscape, but also the people within it and, and their bodies. So how does the civilizing machine want to assemble or need to assemble certain types of bodies and places? Uh, and, wh- and where does it get this from? And what does it need to remove and expel? For this to happen, so if you if you look look at the city of um, Xining and you look at the way that it's being uh, redeveloped, you'll see that there it's uh, resembling more and more cities that would be sort of models from Nadi from Inner China, and these areas become the places that are considered um, sort of standards or models of um, the most civilized urban districts. And this is something that comes up in conversations. You can ask people like, you know, what is, what is, what are the parts that seem the most civilized and and it's, which basically means that has the most civility. And one of the interesting things is it, it's sort of attached to an aesthetic and to an economy. So one of the newest districts in the city and at the time called West New Lake District of West District was this place that had been built from scratch. And it was like, as you know, I remember one of my uh, uh, participants telling me it was like uh, entering a new, a new standard city when you crossed into it. It was very green, very shiny, lots of glass. It's a real break from the sort of, you know, socialist era, urban landscape, or the, even the early 2000s landscapes that are in other parts of the city. But one of the things about that city, uh, that part of the city, is it has big um, 
sidewalks for walking. It has better, um, just from, a, from the perspective of urban planning, better ways to manage population mobility for an era with more car ownership and stuff. And the houses themselves are more likely the apartment buildings to have things like basements where cars can park. So there's this, uh, what happens then is that the older parts of the city, and in particular the parts of the city that have um, historically concentrations of Muslims, and also where, say, the colleges and government organizations where you've had um, over the last couple decades more Tibetans move, this includes the Tibetan market and the rail, uh, the bus stations and the railway station, these areas become devalued. They become seen as the places where crime is, where they're the dirtiest. And I would then, you know, talk to Tibetans who were opening businesses, and they, you know, they desired to, to be in sort of the newer centers. Um, really, lots of people did to be in these places because they were seen as more shufu, more comfortable, better economies, more convenient. But at the same time, if you were to talk to uh, you know, I also talked to um, Muslim groups and I talked to Han. And one of the overwhelming senses you get is that these new areas are not really places where um, the minoritized ethnic groups are visible. So there's a very strong normative pressure. So when I was there in 2017, they actually had this, um, this national competition for the civilized city, which was acting on the body. So this is what I'm talking about, assembling the body, right? that there are certain ways of crossing the road, certain ways of disposing of your garbage, um, certain ways of speaking standard Putonghua, Mandarin, that are sort of more expected in these parts of the city. And I would, you know, talk to Tibetans and things that felt that, you know, like these conversations about the cha- the moving centers, about the way that the, uh, the sort of civilizational conceit is being um, deployed, I think would kind of work into these ideas that the, you know, the government was devaluing um, Tibetan culture or misappropriating its wealth in order to not actually help what um, people really needed. Mm-hmm. That's right. Um, thanks. Related to that, the next chapter offers a, a, a critique of the civilizing machine by exploring how how Tibetans uh, have developed alternative uh, views on the city uh, right. and the values attached to it, right? And, and yes. now, uh, of, of course, uh, part of the reason why the civilizing machine has failed uh, is although it got officially recognized as a civilized city in, in 2017, um, the process of transforming Xining into a civilized city it, in the in this process, um, uh, it produced uneven uh, spaces of relative progress and development, and neighborhoods uh, that are dominated by Muslim uh, or or Tibetans are looked upon as as places or, or districts of of crime and uncleanliness, and in this kind of peripheralization of of certain certain communities in in the city. Um, of course, this is not the only reason why Tibetans are critiquing organization and, and city life, but um, uh, there seems to be a, an attitudinal sort of a difference or a basis for why Tibetans have launched a kind of discourse of critique against urbanization and urban life or against this uh, teleological uh, developmental logic that everyone must in the end uh, kind of end up in a in, in city. Uh, yeah. So could you, could you discuss uh, this? 
Yeah, sure. This is, um, so to go back to this idea of the civilizing machine and the, 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 the city being assembled, um, one of my argument, one of my main arguments, um, then is that to find the politics and the agency is that people who are, even if they're positioned at the periphery, and I, I mean this in the sense of, uh, you know, informal economies like you find at the Tibetan market or not not being the dominant population in the city, um, not living uh, necessarily in, in this new high standard world-class urbanism that's being built um, and being the new center. The people from the margin, they also can plug their projects and their cultural investments into the urban environment. So I was looking then at the ways that Tibetans critique the, the urban. And this this can be, you know, um, sort of drawing from the great tradition of Tibetan Buddhist civilization or drawing from um, indigenous practices and just sort of local um, life ways. So one of the things I talk about that that, that you were um, mentioning then is this idea that Tibetans seeing, like, um, Baorong tolerance was one of the terms that was often bundled with this civilized city discourse that people should be uh, tolerant. And this actually shows up in a lot of urban mottos um, across China, including in the motto of Xining. But the city of Xining itself could be rejected, right, as being intolerant. So it was interesting to to have um, people telling me sort of about the superficiality of this. So much of this, you know, um, whether it's the spectacle of the world-class city or it's the sort of um, passive ways, the kinds of ropes and things that they're using to change people's behavior, that there's that there's a superficiality of it to it, that the urban itself can lead to deceitful um, behavior. And, uh, you know, I this would come up in conversations like, uh, and it's, uh, there's um, dimensions related to these uh, ethnic identities as well. So for instance, one pastoralist, woman I met who was telling me a story about her uncle who had come to the city to go to the hospital. He brought dairy products with him and kept them in his, in his chuba, in his coat. And the people on the bus were commenting, um, you know, that he was dirty and that he smelled. She thought this was right. An example of how Shining wasn't tolerant, but even at the hospital, um, all, all the, 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 the Han Chinese, the doctors could suggest was, you know, this person that their hygiene is very bad. They, they, they need to clean, um, and, and that sort of this idea that uh, so much of, the, of these judgments, these valuations were just being made at, at sight, it, you know, at basically at the sensory level, which is so much about what this sort of world-class urban model is, right? It is very, uh, you know, not only in China, but when people are shopping for the nicest housing around the world, the nicest urban districts, it is very superficial. It's very materialist. Um, so, interestingly, then, uh, this critique would also go down to, to the level of um, 
you know, urban into, or Tibetan intellectuals have also written about this, sort of critiquing, um, as, as you were mentioning, sort of this civilization, uh, the, the teleological expectation that the Chinese uh, program, the state-led urbanization, um, you know, the demands that people move to urban areas and modernize, and this is the only way forward, is itself not, it's not the only option for them or for anybody. And, you know, there's all kinds of critiques. So, one of the examples I bring up, there's there's a, there's a number of poets, maybe you can <laughs> expand upon them. Bolingel, I know you know quite a bit about this, but I talk about a, a music video that uh, which is called Zhongcher City, and this um, singer, um, Lobsang Yima, and it is great because there's uh, the lyrics are from uh, Min La Jab, and there's a cinematographer who's worked with a number of other music videos. It's very much an urban product, a product of urban skill. But it's a critique of the city for things like um, getting people to get into fights, to drinking, but also really beautiful lyrics that hearken to, you know, Tibetan Buddhist ideas of uh, the mind and um, samsara and how the, the urban presents all these um, distractions, it pushes the mind to, to be rushed. So these images of the city, the video opens with this great image that I wanted to be on the cover of the book, but I didn't, I didn't um, pursue <laughs> trying to find permissions for it. <laughs> but I love the image, and it's a great music video. Is it has the, starts the beautiful Tibetan, you know, the, 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 the snowland landscape, the Tibetan plateau, white and blue and green, you're zooming over it. And then the top image is sort of the inverse, and it's like this polluted urban cityscape that's yellow and dark. And you're sort of flying between these two planes. And I thought that was a really good um, critique of, you know, where is the beauty, where is the aesthetic? Now, I, I don't mean to say that, and, 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 that's, and I think it's a really important point that I try to make in the book. Tibetans do not, or, you know, the Tibetans I talked with in many of the videos I watched and things I read, there was rarely a full rejection of the urban, but there was a, a desire that the urban not necessarily be, you know, marginalize them so much and that if they, you know, if, if Tibetans could make the urban work for themselves and they had more input, then it wouldn't be quite as damaging economically, socially, culturally. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. I it was very interesting. Again, you also discussed in in, in this chapter about uh, not just the the kind of uh, artistic um, productions like the song um, by Lofanima, but also uh, literature, right? Uh, poetry of, of especially of the third generation poets, uh, and how uh, the city became a kind of a. a, a a very um, important and immediate concern for for them to kind of give expression to uh, to the experience of traversing the concrete right, the city and how this kind of uh, came to be seen as a as an existential threat to to the Tibetan way of life and, and and because this is where massive scale of assimilation happens in city and I have always yeah. kind of. Uh, Found it a little uh, ironic that uh, that these uh, poets and writers, intellectuals, uh, are critiquing against city, but most of the time they are also they are living in the city and they are kind of writing about the rural life. And this, I found that very kind of uh, 
<laughs> interesting. And yeah. how... That's a great, it's a great topic that deserves further exploration. Absolutely. And it, maybe I would add here, because um, this brings up for me, you know, some of the ideas of what would people or, you know, what are some of the ways then beyond uh, these critiques that Tibetans have made an effort to make the urban or, you know, what, what might they want from the urban that's being uh, is difficult to get and how do they go about it? So one of the things was that it is not, um, Qinghai is not in a, like a Tibetan autonomous province and Xining is not a Tibetan autonomous city. And there are, uh, it's, it's hard to get Tibetan language education. So if you're growing up in an urban area, and I would say many of the people I talked to wanted their, their children educated in Xining, often at Chinese language schools, so that they would have good economics, good prospects in the future. But there was this growth of supplementary education, secondary education, or, or uh, supplementary education that would often occur during winter breaks, where there would be Tibetan classes within the city. I, I interviewed some of the teachers that were involved in that. There were also, also during the summer, the importance, the necessity of going back to villages in order to learn from elders, in order to uh, sort of embody dispositions like how to tie a robe, how to treat teachers. Um, all, you know, all of these things were, were important and people would... Um, and talk about how they wanted to sort of strategize. Maybe I'll send my uh, child to the village for primary education and then to the city for secondary education. Um, and also, though, this being tied up in a fear that even their villages would be um, urbanized and lose their Tibetan characteristics. But another one to return to this idea of the history and the memory of the city was that, you know, even these uh, memorialized um and the toponyms of places within the city of Xining, there were uh, debates or histories that were being provided that maybe some of these names are, they're actually Tibetan names or, um, and I, you know, as uh, we've talked about that the Tsongkha kingdom of the 11th century was actually in Selan, which is the Tibetan word for Xining. So that this is really a, a fundamentally um, Tibetan city. And I have this uh, that I republished in a book, a great map by a uh, Tibetan scholar and researcher, um, Dobi Shadr. And I, I think it really, um, you know, the, the level of articulation of this city, I think is very important because then other Tibetans can learn about it. And then they don't just see the city as this, you know, the story of the Chinese pacified city, which is what you would get from uh typically from these sort of Sinocentric stories. And there's also stories to be told about the Muslim city, perhaps even the Mongol city. Um, but yeah, that, that's one of the ways that people can kind of bring this into the city, bring agency, yeah, assemble it. Yeah, thank you. I just wanted to add that and this kind of uh, idea of, uh, of the countryside right, as, a, as, a, as a cultural reservoir where where Tibetan habitudes can be uh, can be inculcated, is uh, is interesting because you see kind of similar phenomena happening even outside Tibet in, in cities like New York City. Tibetans oh. send their their kids to to go and study Tibetan Tibetan culture and language in Dharamsala or South India, 
over the summer or even for sometimes a year. So uh, we are coming towards the end. Uh, and uh, as for the uh, last chapter, we have, uh, which is uh, building a Tibetan city. And this is where you kind of uh, touched a bit on, on how Tibetans remember the city and Tibetans uh, involved in making, selling a Tibetan city, right? And here uh, you argue how, to, uh, how Tibetans living in, in the city imagine the city as both a place of cultural destruction and also a place of cultural and political possibility. So in, in what ways do Tibetans uh, actively kind of uh, assert their presence and create and contribute uh, towards making Sling uh, a Tibetan city? So in this chapter, I'm really interested in placemaking and how Tibetans were making places, whether it was their urban home, um, a business, restaurants, or their um, Xiaochu, or Rakor, which was the, the name for the housing community, which mm-hmm. Chinese cities are divided into, what they did in order to really make themselves at home, essentially, but also be able to meet and network with um, other Tibetans. And I found that this occurred across the city, but that it wasn't very easy. And this this really comes back to the the conversation about uh, that we began with about contested uh, politics, right? That you can't say in New York if you want a, a road commemorated or if you want a community center built, you can um, apply to have this done. There's just democratic avenues through which you can pursue these things. Not always the case in China where there's a lot more petitioning um, that needs to go on or just trying to sort of stay under the radar. So I'll talk about this in terms of um, like restaurants that are often sort of you have to learn about through word of mouth that are in high rises. I've talked to some of the restaurant owners that would talk about sort of not wanting um, too many Chinese to learn about the restaurant because then it would sort of ruin the atmosphere. But then also decorating often these restaurants so that they looked very, so they sort of brought a grassland element including the cuisine, of course, but having things like the black tent, pieces of the black tent or the urcha, which is the, the herding tool, and having these sorts of elements around, right? So that, that was an important way that Tibetans could meet and sort of have these places that they could go to that had reputations they could talk about. But there are also difficulties. So for instance, you had some retirement communities in the city where people had been able to construct prayer wheels so that um, older members of the community could turn turn the prayer wheels. But if you did not happen to be in a housing community that was set up to permit that, um, in one case, I, I met people who had, had, they struggled with it. It had been bulldozed the first time they tried to build it. They had to petition. It was very... Um, tense and impassioned, and they eventually get, were able to c- sort of get a compromise and build something smaller. But, you know, I think today, if we think about it, I did this research, the majority of it was between 2013 and 2017. And as we all know, in the last couple of years, um, in particular, you know, Islamic structures, such as those in the city that I was studying, mosques have had the domes removed, Right. So this isn't just, uh, this stuff really matters. And it, and the, the way it's negotiated, there's always a risk that 
you could go into dangerous territory and just, you know, end up having something bulldozed, something shut down, being detained. There's always a risk of this. So this placemaking is really important and it's a form of politics that it sort of goes on in authoritarian environments under the radar, which is one of my arguments. I'd say, and maybe just to sort of end with it, one of the most interesting um, things that I really enjoyed, uh, that was a real sort of place event in the city of Xining was the, the Tibetan gathering that happens in the summer on a park overlooking the city. And this is where people set up tents, they have um, competitions, uh, for clothing, for song, they, there's there's just cultural events and things like this. Uh, but this hat, you know, in order to do this, this is something that needs to be negotiated with municipal government. And, uh, you know, if there is an event, I mean, if there's a, a problem that occurs, and much of this research I did was occurred after the um, stabbings that had occurred in Kunming in um, 2014, which had led to an increased security environment across the city. Uh, you know, there's just a risk that, especially if you have a lot of people together, that um, or you know something that's too big, too much expression, putting your head up too high, that things could you you'd cross this threshold, and that was always overhanging um, the community. So. Yeah. I found the expression you use very interesting: the rhizomatic mm. structure, right, or, yeah. or rhizomatic resistance, and that is that it's kind of dispersed, and there's no um, like single area or a single site that's very too prominent for the stage to be crushed, but different areas they've been kind of dispersed, diffused across the city, like the Kora place or, or squares where Tibetans gather and dance, right? It's another kind of practice of placemaking. Yeah, we've come to the uh, end. Uh, and before we end, um, is there anything you want to add? Well, I'd say, you know, one of the things I was really interested uh, in with this is there's all these discussions of the China model, and I think it's post-pandemic hit perhaps a bit of a, a road bump. I'm not sure, but having these urban exports of uh, so p- people have written about like um, Johor Forest City in Malaysia, or you know, so these are examples of China exporting these sort of world-class urban environments that I argue you know would carry with them. They assemble a certain material and can be invested with a certain um, sort of symbolic or discursive content. What might that look like um, in other places around the world? Would the experiences of the sort of marginalized or minoritized communities be similar? And I think this is something you could also ask for other state-led urban projects, right? Like, uh, which we could find in other um, countries around the world, like, like in India. I believe with this we have uh, come to the end of our conversation. But before we conclude, I I want to thank you and and congratulate Dr. Grant uh, uh, for the publication of of his first book from Cornell University Press and for coming on the New Books Network to discuss uh, the book with me. Uh, Thank you very much and uh, have a lovely day.